Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. I'm Scott Postman, your host, and I'm joined by Joffrey Swade. And Joffrey, we have another guest with us today, right? We do. One of our art teachers, Roxana Corradino. Hi, Roxana. Welcome. Good afternoon from sunny <laughs> South Florida. <laughs> the it's, sunshine it's, makes her very chipper. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's it's snowing here in Idaho, and you've got sunshine there in Florida. Wow. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Roxana is one of our Kepler teachers, as Joffrey mentioned. Um, Roxana has an MFA in art. And uh, Roxana, tell us a little bit about your background, where you're currently teaching besides Kepler, and maybe just introduce yourself a little bit. So I am Roxana Corradino. Um, I am a mom of a beautiful six-year-old boy, soon-to-be-seven-year-old boy. His name is Matteo Giuseppe Corradino. Very Italian name. <laughs> he is a violinist and he is in kindergarten. So that's my first role. And then my second role is that I am um, an FIU. I teach at Florida International University. Um, it's my alma mater where I received my um, bachelor's degree in fine arts. Um, I focused in photography mostly and um, a minor in art history. And um, I teach there. I've been teaching there since 2004, 2005. Uh, I um, started teaching art history there, performance art. And then um, the chair of the department, about what, 15, almost 20 years ago, asked me to teach a class online because the teachers were, the, the faculty, wasn't interested in teaching online. So as soon as he asked me, would you like to teach this course online? I said, yes, I would like to teach this course online because I knew that um, online education was something that was buzzing. And um, I felt like a pioneer with my wagon and my little bonnet ready. (laughs) You were at that time, right? Yes, I really did. I felt like a pioneer. And so I took the job and I have been teaching that course. It started with about 30 something students. And at the time, at that time, I was also teaching full time as an art teacher for Miami-Dade County Public Schools. I taught pregnant and teen parents for almost a decade of my life, which was perhaps, yes, the most rewarding time of my life. And um, I loved every second of it. It was very difficult at times because I was working with a population of students that needed a lot of love, but um, it was the most rewarding. And then at the same time, I was also teaching at FIU part-time working on this online platform. And we started with WebCT and we moved to Blackboard. And now we're working with Canvas, which I love. Um, But um, I started with about 30 something students And um, eventually it moved to uh, 50 and then some and then 200 students per semester. And so now we have four sections per semester and we brought in another adjunct to teach one of the the sections per semester. So um, that's what I've been doing for for maybe 
uh, well, full-time, not full-time because I teach, it's more like a part-time job. And then I have another um, role at the university as a dual enrollment coordinator and mentor. So I mentor a group of teachers in the community. I visit their classrooms and I evaluate their dual enrollment program to make sure that their dual enrollment program meets the same criteria and assignments are aligned to our FIU curriculum. And then also I work as a coordinator for our dual enrollment program in the unit. So communication, um, art, theater, I'm all, all over the arts, architecture, landscape architecture. And it's funny because when I visit the chairs of the department, I'm like, I could so do, I could, I could, I love, <laughs> I love this program. I want to take your classes. And it goes from what? journalism to media. So I'm all over music and um, it's just theater and art and dance. So I work with a team of mentors that are faculty members at the university, and I also help assist with their training. So I'm a woman of many hats. I also own my own business, which is an art and joy business, which started as a company to help aging adults to teach art to them using techniques as an art educator. So I'm just really busy and I'm always doing stuff. And you're doing Kepler. And a long-term, and I'm also a long-term BSF person. So I've been doing BSF for a long, long time. So I also do BSF. And those people that know BSF know that it takes a lot of time and dedication mm. to be part of BSF. Well, and I, I love I love that of all those roles, your very first role is mom to your yeah. son, right? You know, so you're the the primary educator there. Now you said you were all over the place, uh, and you, you used the word communication, and I, and I love uh, both of those things. So, uh, Roxana has has three courses that families can sign up for uh, this coming year. Uh, there's a, a, an elective in the fall, a history of photography. Uh, there's an art history course, but then there there's the course that kind of brought us to this podcast, mm-hmm. which is visual communication. And you know a lot of the ideas in that course, you could you could hear some of that coming out of what Roxana was talking about with even just integrating different arts right. in, into what she was doing. I mean, like you mentioned, Roxana, um, you know, like like uh, uh, landscape architecture, right? I mean, that is such a visual thing. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe talk to us about about visual language, visual literacy. Um, you know, in the context of your class, but also also more broadly, as you wish. Um, why is it important that uh, that Christians, humans, uh, be visually literate? And what does it even mean to be visually literate? So, okay, I met, go. I feel like if I need to answer this in two kind of avenues here. So, great. We can start biblically by just opening the Book of Genesis, and everything is very visual. That book to me is a visual book. We're going through the stages of creation. And to me, it's just a visual the description of how God created our world. Um, I worked in South America. I did some classes. Well, it was a student abroad program in South America for a summer in Chile, in the Atacama um, region of northern Chile. And... Um, it's the Atacama Desert is the driest desert in the world. And also its altitude makes it that as that you could see the stars. Um, I said, I've always said as God intended, 
because I've never seen stars like that in my whole entire life. And I remember hanging out with some physicists that are astronomers at the university. And I told them that I had gone to um, the Atacama and they both looked at each other and they're like, yeah, did you see this? And I'm like, yeah, I saw the stars. They were almost, it was like, as God intended us to see the stars because I've never seen a world like that. And so I think that this is all visuals that are described to us in the Bible and we kind of never see it because we're in different areas of the world and things like that. And so I think that in that sense, biblically, as far as the Bible, we could see how God has visually shared with us in word, of course, but this visual aspects, like he wants us to put these, this imagery in our minds. Yeah, he wants us to picture it. And so, but then there's also like um, performative acts that are in the Bible. Now, my master's degree is in performance work. And when I look at performance work, I open the book of Ezekiel. Let's say, let's start with Ezekiel because he's my favorite one to talk about when it comes to this. Not only are we looking at pictures in two-dimensional, a two-dimensional platform, let's say, like visually 2D. But we also have to think of visual as three, three-dimensional or four-dimensional, let's say. Um, and in the book of Ezekiel, he's doing these prof- prophetic acts, which are very visual. The intention yeah. is for the audience, the people that he was profiting, sharing the, inf- the, the information with, they were an audience and they were watching and witnessing these acts. And the principles of these acts that you see Ezekiel go through are very similar to the principles that a modern or a contemporary performance artist would would use. So we have time, being that Ezekiel's laying on one side for 40 days, laying on another side for for a year. Um, What he's consuming is symbolic. laying on one side and the other side is symbolic. There's this idea of symbolism. And so there's so many visuals in the Bible that are not just in a two-dimensional platform that we have to, that we use our imaginations and our minds to think about, but we also are visually seeing in many different dimensions. Those were, it's just something that I've, I've kind of noticed as I study, you know, the prophets um, we can also look at the book of Hosea. Hosea also was someone who was asked to do something very in extreme. And in contemporary performance work, you also see these extreme behaviors, like these extreme acts. And um, I had a friend who, uh, uh, when I was in graduate school, who went to an extreme as well, similar to Hosea, who married Gomer. That was an extreme because everyone who was around Hosea thought he was completely mad. (laughs) And so in many ways, this artist installed uh, a a camera to surgically, um, surgically implanted a camera in the back of his head so that he could photograph or document what was going on behind him um, during periods of the day living in New York City. Mm. And, uh, and so it's very similar, this drastic people, uh, whenever I tell the story of his work, people are like, he's mad. And so it's almost like the same reaction 
the mm. same reaction. You're mad, but there's a there's a there's a purpose, there's an outcome and a lesson and a warning. Um, to be, sh- I don't know so much about the photographs that were taken with the camera, <laughs> but definitely in the story of Hosea, there was definitely a very specific message that that God wanted to share with His people and eventually with us. So it's, I love the book of Hosea. So it's That's one of my, a- my favorite books in, in in the Bible. That one in the book of John. Well, I, I think that's such a great example, um, you know, of this idea of visual communication, that God uses this kind of communication to really make the kind of drastic impact on his people that that needs to be made. And then you mentioned John. Um, I, I'm assuming you're talking about John the Baptist and the visual image there. Oh, so the book of John is one of my favorite books. And yes, I'm referring to John the Baptist, who was known to wear um, like a like a sheep or some sort of like furry thing. I guess it's very similar to what the other prophet wore. Um, Elias wore like a furry kind of. Yeah. Like a hair coat. Yeah. Yeah. And so that to me is also um, very symbolic because that's another, it's, 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 I don't want to say costume because that kind of would make it sound a little bit, but it meant something, and the, and, and the Jews realized that it meant something when he dressed that way. Correct. And so the dress is also something that is very symbolic, which is also a, an idea of visual communication. He wore it for for a reason. Yeah, you know, it's. I think it's. It can be alien for us often to think about. Uh, thinking in symbols and images, and, and of course, so your your course visual communication is is designed to introduce uh, you to, to this this language and this this way of thinking. But you know, uh, I think especially uh, homeschoolers, you know, we 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 are people of the book, right? Yes, yeah. um, and 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 we ought to be, and we're very we're we're very much lettered, um, and so then. It, it can, I think, it can be difficult for us sometimes to visualize, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the process of, of beginning to think this way. So I, I'm interested to, to to hear you talk about how, how to how to develop this mindset, but maybe particularly like t- to ask how we approach teaching visual literacy uh, as compared to to teaching reading or teaching yeah. through reading. So I'm going through the process now of learning how to. <laughs> To read again, because my son is six years old. And so he goes to a small Christian school and we are we have a curriculum that is Christian based and they start with letter recognition, which is a visual process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are symbols. Yes. And my son had a tough time trying to remember all of those letters. Um, He knew the sound of these letters, but had a difficult time naming these letters so the letter r or the letter p was one that i remember vividly the letter p was never the letter p it was the symbol for popcorn Mm. (laughs) you know it's very strange so it's the same way that you would approach a young reader would be how you educate someone in the visual in the visual world or as far as visual literacy um, I would start with elements and principles of art, which is very important. And I believe you um, you wanted me to, to talk about a little bit about the visual and principles of art. Yeah, yeah. So um, how do artists 
it, when you're thinking about the principles of the elements of art, which are just basic vocabulary words, so the ingredients, and then the grammar or the principles of principles of art is the um, the actual recipe and how you put them all together. So I would start with a detailed um, class on the principles and elements of art and how to apply them on um, creating our own works of art um, and how to use them to analyze, describe, and um, interpret works of art. Because without them, then it makes it very difficult for you to, to talk about art. Mm-hmm. You need the visual and elements and principles of art, very similar to my son, who needed to do both the visual letter recognition and the sounds in order to be able to read. So yeah, it sounds like there's art, a grammar logic and rhetoric to this, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So in many ways you need to know your principles in order your elements and your principles in art to be able to later on have a, um, either solve a case study. I love case studies, solve a state case study, write a paper, um, go to a museum and select a work of art, and then you can talk about it or write about it, um, or a performance. Um, it's very similar um, as far as either something that you listen to or watch, like a ballet performance or a theatrical performance. You would follow very similar steps. Mm. And so this would be either um, a term called visual uh you know, it's visual communication or um, there, there's another name for it that the museum uses at FIU, which I've used before. And I can't think of the name right now. It's very similar to visual communication as a very similar name. I can't remember right now what that name is, but is also um, the process of basically it's a name for describing, analyzing, interpreting and judging works of art. Mm-hmm. Or you could do describe analyze, interpret, or judge, or ju- judge or evaluate works of art. Right. And so, yeah, you need, so you need the, the, the vocabulary right. to be able to talk about it. You, you need to understand the, the grammar, the syntax of how the thing works. But, you know, th- this, this conversation is reminding me of, uh, of, of my experience working for a ministry that, that did audio Bibles mm. in minority languages. So for oral cultures. And you know, I, I, it's impressive how much modes of thinking shape our mind, mm-hmm. um, and so and I think we lose sight of that. You know, in in a highly literate culture, and and being brought up to be highly literate, as many of our students are, um, we we sort of you know we we continue we go forward we go forward and our minds minds grow, uh, but sometimes because we're not outside of it, we we don't see that. To some effect, there's also but there's some funneling, sure. and, and funneling is is not a bad thing, right? Right, it gives you direction. Um, but then when you step into a different mode of thinking, you realize how much you can grow there as well. And so, you know, as I worked with oral cultures who worked who worked by speech, right? It was about what you heard, um, and and just realizing like how different their mindsets often were, and how they approached new information, how they talked about the world. Um, and, and but visually, it's the same way, right? So sure. when, when you're when you're interacting with the world visually, you find new ways of ex- of thinking and new ways of expressing. Yeah, there's there's different categories of thought uh, by which you process information or or you know the ideas that are coming through. 
versus that sort of linear way that you you know you're mentioning in in um, in cultures that are just reason based or logic based. You know, when it's picture or poetic or or visual image, it seems to be there's different muscles working. You know, in in shaping these categories of thought. Yeah, and so I I would encourage regardless of what your your the direction you want to take your studies in, I mean, uh, uh, courses like these are the sorts of things that will truly broaden your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, please, yeah, go ahead. Say something really quick. Um, So, for example, if a student is going to take my history photography class or my art, my art surveys class, they would analyze, they would describe, analyze, interpret, and judge or evaluate a work of art. However, in the visual communications class, I would have them work on describing, analyzing. They could use those two, but interpretation would be substituted. Why? Because in visual communication, we're not really going to interpret works. We're, we want to make sure that the message, the, the symbol, um, um, graft, map, is correctly use it's it's correctly developed to inform or provide information for the people or the person that is reading the material. So there's a difference there between graphic design and um, or uh, yeah graphic design and a more of a visual uh, uh, in the arts sense. Like for example, the history of photography would be more of of an art class and then um history of of um survey one and two would be an art class but then the visual communications class it would be more about in marketing branding information distribution maps graphs and things like that so how is that information going to be processed by the people or the audience that is intended for yeah, it makes me think of the difference between a creative writing course and a technical writing class. Right. Uh, one aspect that, that came to my mind as you were talking, and maybe you could clarify for me or for our audience as well, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I'm sort of hearing here is the difference between what we would say in literature as authorial intent and reader response, right? So when you look at a when you look at something like a map, that's not open for interpretation, right? This isn't reader response when you're saying, I'm, I'm reading a map and thinking, you know, well, to me, this map is saying this. What, what I'm hearing you say, Roxanne, and, and correct me again if I'm wrong, but that learning to interpret these symbols correctly means that there is an objectiveness to, you know, that communication. Is that correct? Absolutely. So, for example... Um, like you said, a map is a map. You have to, there's no, you need to make sure that the sign that you've created that you want or um, the pictograph that you want for people uh, in this universe. Like when we go to an airport, especially, we want to make sure that the exit signs are all, uh, everyone around the world can understand them because everyone from around the world is going to that airport. So you mm-hmm. want to make sure that the information that is visually presented is in, is direct and specific. And then when we go into, and if we we run the, the visual um, process, um, the writing process, so description, analyzation, interpretation, and judgment in the arts, and we're looking at, let's say, I don't know, 
a painting. Let me think of a painting here. I can't even think of a painting. Um, Goya's, I don't know, one of Goya's paintings. Um, we can think of um, the way that he, let me give you, let me give you one so that we can have a mental picture of this painting. So let's do Picasso's Guernica, one of my favorites. So we can, everyone will be able to interpret that differently, even though the artist had its own meanings behind what he, you know, painted in the image, but everyone would be able to interpret that differently. And, you know, and it's interesting because as an artist, sometimes I have an initial interpretation of my own artwork, but as I work through the process of art making, that interpretation changes and also, as I get older, when I look back at some of my artwork, some of the things have changed as well. Yeah, and as, as you've learned st stuff even about yourself and where you were when when you, when you made that that piece of art, I do think it's very interesting. You know, thinking from the visual communication side of things, how this impacts the fine arts, because um, you know how how dull would a, would a, a painting be where you could just look at it and say I know exactly what he wanted to say it was X and Y and that's that <laughs> right but the, you know the, the artist also has a responsibility to to try to communicate right there's so many modern artists who say well you know my painting is what it is and let the viewer come to it as they are and everyone will have an absolutely different meaning right. and I have no responsibility toward that. Right, and that's way on the on the other extreme, and it it should be a conversation, and for it to be a conversation, artists need to believe that they can provoke certain responses and certain interpretation from from people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, this has been around for forever. I know that the Aztecs used a footprint to show direction. Mm hmm. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, before the show, Scott and I were talking about how, uh, you know, like th there is a lot of universality to symbols, but then every once in a while, something will sneak up on you. Like, I mean, a very, you know, common one to think of would be that uh, pharmacies are, are red in the United States, but they're green in most of the world, right? You know, that's because <laughs> green is the color of health for most people. Um, I did El Camino Santiago de Compostela back in 28, 29, 2009. I walked from France over the Pyrenees into Spain. And I walked uh, with two young women from Brazil. It was very interesting. <laughs> Those were my travel partners. And um, we, you know, the symbol of El Camino de Santiago de Compostela is that seashell. Ah. And... Um, it's funny because later on, I was like, started to see it everywhere in art. And I'm like looking at art history and I'm like, oh, look at this. Look at this. It's this shell from Santiago Compostela. It's the shell. And it just popped. I would see it all over the place every time I saw a painting. I was like, oh, that's a shell from Santiago Compostela, whether it's true or not. To me, every shell now in any yeah. painting from the Renaissance <laughs> is, is, or, or, or the Gothic period, I'm like, whenever I see a shell, I'm like, oh, Camino Santiago Compostela. <laughs> I, that does make me want to find out if a seashell is a, saint, is a symbol of St. James. Is that <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, that, that's very cool. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting how how... The, there's a there's a mix of what it, what can be obvious and what can be obscure and and there ought to be you know, even as artists are communicating there ought to be something of a journey like what, what's the painting the kingdom of heaven with all the animals and it looks like a a, a sort of slightly bizarre pastoral there, there's a lion and there's a bull and there are all these animals but it 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 looks though like a 
a version of of pastoral paintings that were contemporary to it. But then when you read the title, the title tells you this is about the kingdom of heaven, uh, right? All these animals to get, you know, but yeah. it just takes a little, a, a little bit of exploration and then it becomes clear. And, and so, you know, th- th- that's why, f- you know, fine arts are fine arts. It, it is a conversation. It is, it is a journey, but it can't mean anything unless there is, uh, there is intelligibility. And if there's, if there is intelligibility, then there has to be something you can learn about how to be intelligible. Yeah. Right. And that's where it sounds like, you know, with visual communication, where that goes. Roxanne, I was telling Joffrey before when we were uh, discussing, you know, this podcast episode, when uh, when I was in college, I had this experience in a psychology class that it it kind of stood out because it took me by surprise. There was a, an aspect of it where we had to evaluate um, some visual communication and what these things were saying in a, you know, from a, from a psychologist standpoint. And the one particular image I remember was this soldier that, uh, it, it kind of had, I, I'm imagining it was probably Vietnam. So it was very green jungle and the soldiers walking up the road. And when the journalist placed the image, um, with the soldier in it, when, when he positioned it so that the soldiers on the left side, I'm, I'm thinking this was the left side. Um, we, we evaluated it that way. And then we had to evaluate it the same image, but it was cropped in such a way where the soldier was now on the right side. And, um, and, and if I'm not mistaken, I would, I haven't seen this for a long time, but immediately you kind of looked at the guy and thought, this is a good soldier. And when he was placed on the right, he was a bad soldier. Like your mind interpreted these images in a certain way without any other context that you, you sort of came up with this opinion about, um, this soldier or about what was going on based on where this thing was positioned and how that symbol was actually communicating. So I'm just, I'm interested, maybe you could talk a little bit about how uh, visual communication communicates, you know, in biased or unbiased ways. You had mentioned earlier about journalism and, and um, you know, uh, landscape architecture being interested in both. And so I see sort of a, a connection there between those two disciplines in visual communication. Well, as the mother of a left-hander, <laughs> my son is a left-handed child. I have read a lot about left-handed people because no one in my family is left-handed. And so I've had to really read up on left, left-handed children. And one thing about the left is that it's always been... Um, it's uh, izquierda or um, derecha is correct and left is is of the devil they would say mm. um, at least in 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 Spanish language but I don't know if in Portuguese it's the same <laughs> no it doesn't quite work the same <laughs> no, right, no, but yeah. the left was always like a like oh the left is not not very good. Um, you see that somewhat in the in the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a there are definitely there are a lot of cultures for whom you know the left hand is still uh, unclean and the right hand is the hand of righteousness. Yeah. So perhaps your experience in college, looking <laughs> at this image with this soldier in the left and the right, comes from that background. You you might not even remember. I, one doesn't even know that you have these biases because they've already been like, you know, kind of ingrained, like they're in you. And but you're a like, skilled oh, visual communicator yeah. 
you know, you're aware of those biases, right? Right, Roxana, you can, and you can, to a sense, manipulate them the same way a good yeah. speaker is manipulating words, right? right? You want a certain effect. Well, there's a rhetorical, yeah, there's a rhetorical aspect of it. And I guess from that experience, you know, personally, you know, as I begin to look at different image, you know, images communicating different things used in marketing or whatever, it, it really did cause me to evaluate a little bit what I was looking at and, and, you know, how does it, is there anything impressions that it's making without saying anything? Most people, when they're looking at artwork, spend 30 seconds in front of a painting. Mm. And so when we go to the, see the Mona Lisa, we spend a lot of time, a lot of money to go visit her at the Louvre. And we just quickly take a photograph of the Mona Lisa. After waiting in line and the line is, you know, you're pushing you to move on and not just stand in front of it. Right. And so you can't really stand in front of it. So, um, you know, today, I think that also was referencing like the still image versus a, a storify a, a Instagram reel. Mm. Um, that now most of the time we're spending looking at images are, that are 15 to 30 seconds. Oh, that's interesting, given our social media context. Yeah. And so I kind of was like thinking about those things, like how how has it changed? Because the intention of the Mona Lisa was to spend more time looking at her. Mm -hmm. But now our images, our, our images, our modern images, our contemporary images that are out there, because we're not really going to too many museums these days, even online, are basically 15 to 30 seconds long. Yeah, and you know, and there's also the transition from static images to video. Right. Right, and uh, you know, how how that 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 changes how you can present things. Um, you know, and and how like if if you if you put uh, uh, an apple in a certain part of a painting for, you know, certain medieval cultures that would have meant something very specific. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you just stand in front of a camera for Instagram, holding an apple and <laughs> like, it's just, it's not going to mean me, but there, you still have to think visually to communicate effectively. Sure. Right. And you have to think about the, the, the visual language context of, of the people you're talking to. Yeah. And a lot of people using social media, right. I mean, are, are thinking about visual communication as they're trying to set up the, you know, the, the perfect image on Instagram or Facebook or wherever they're posting it using different filters, but they're, they're wanting to communicate something. So the idea of, of visual communication, even just in social media is, is huge in yep. understanding how to do that. Yeah, and also um, curating images because what I love about Instagram is that I like to curate images and I go through these reels and I try to either change, which probably would piggyback on your question, Scott, cropping and changing the sound of these and manipulating these images on Instagram mm -hmm. so that you could use them for your own communication and then putting them together in... Um, in one of these like highlights or whatever it's called on Instagram, putting them together to create a, a almost like a bulletin board. It, sometimes I think of it as a bulletin board of ideas that I might have for, for, for future projects. Um, fueling my mind with images um, that have a combination of things that are just strange and fun to lively, to spiritual, to, you know, and I put them all together and I patch them up in a series and I curate them 
um, to visually communicate um, in a way. This is I'm talking about my artwork here. Yeah. So I use them almost as a as a concept for for works. Can I just say, as an aside, how much I appreciate a legitimate use of the word curate in this like social media day and age? Uh, you know, people are tossing the word curate around all the time, or even like you can go to a restaurant and have a you know a curated board of meats. You know, like <laughs> oh, not yeah. just cured meats, but curated because someone <laughs> thought about it. Curate is a museum word, mm-hmm. and I and I love that. So we're yeah. So we have a a visual artist, a visual thinker, curating some images. That makes sense Cur- to me. <laughs> I do. I I sit at night and I curate these images that I find on Instagram because I use them for a, a like an almost like a nightly recap of my what's going on in my mind as I pull from um, a box of images. So almost mm-hmm. as if some but many years ago, I remember going to Micanopy. Remember Micanopy? I got married in Micanopy. So sorry, little Florida connection. <laughs> okay. yeah, Micanopy, Florida. I would go to the antique shops there and you would yes. find boxes of images from the past. And so you just grab them quickly because you don't really have any sort of um, connection to these images. This is really weird, by the way, as I as I rudely interrupt. My wife does this exact same thing. <laughs> and, she, and she's a painter. Yeah, yeah. So please and continue. <laughs> you just grab them from the box. And, you know, yeah. it's funny because this is somebody's, like, photographs that, sadly, they ended up in this, like, shoe box being sold for, you know, a stack for two bucks you can get mm-hmm. or something like that. That type of thing. And um, you will go there and you just pick images and you just don't really think about them. You just go through them fast and whatever is just gives you like a, like you, it's almost like it, your eyes burn. It feels like that. There's a feeling your eyes burn. You're like, Oh, I like that one. 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 You don't even even know if why you like them. So it's almost the same way I'm approaching my Instagram curated images is the same way that I would go through a shoebox lifting images to find um and it's not even that i'm directly going to work off of these these, this body of of images it's just that i need them i need them uh in my in like in my just myself i need them in my inventory yeah well, I, I love as a language teacher, I, I love the thought of a visual language being a real thing and of, of learning how just the same way you can become more and more fluent uh, in, in speaking a foreign language. You can become more and more fluent in visual communication and you could end up one day not only designing beautiful gardens or making effective signs, but also indulging in some weird photograph shopping and antique shops. <laughs> <laughs> The, the liberal arts aspect of this, uh, you know, is is endless in terms of how this could be, you know, profitable in just becoming a, a, a human being who knows how to communicate well. Well, Roxana, we're coming to the end of our time and, and really thankful for um, you sharing, you know, this idea of visual communication and, and, and the various ways this applies. Are there any final thoughts that you want to leave us with and maybe talk about um, – that you know our audience should know or or that you'd want students or families to know about your course or about visual communication well i hope that the students and the families consider um um enrolling in visual communications or um, if they want to take the history photography class which i'm very excited about as well and of course art survey one and two which is a year-long course 
where we're just going to go over, you know, art history as a in a survey format. Um, and if they want to enroll, I would love to be their child's teacher because it will be not only their learning experience, but my learning journey as well. So I'm really excited about hitting the books again and, and working with your children. And, Fantastic. Uh, and being able to do it with being able to share and teach. I can weave in the gospel, which is very exciting for me. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful aspect of getting to teach on a Christian platform. A lot of Absolutely. teachers. Absolutely. Yes, I'm very excited about that. <laughs> well, Roxana, we appreciate you being here. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. <laughs>